This edition of the Security Ledger Podcast is sponsored by Trusted Computing Group. Through open standards and specifications, Trusted Computing Group enables secure computing. Through its member-driven network groups, Trusted Computing Group enables the benefits of trust in computing devices from mobile to embedded systems, as well as network, storage, infrastructure, and cloud security. More than a billion devices include TCG technologies. Check them out at trustedcomputinggroup.org. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 220. I guess we can't assume anymore that everything's safe, right? We're, we're kind of moving to the point where <laughs> zero trust really is extending into everything. But on the TCG front, you know, something like a TPM, we can use that in things like measured boot and attestation. These are all, uh, allow a remote verification process. So things like uh, the, the firmware load, the software load, configuration, Pretty much whatever you can create a hash or digest of, you can uh, verify is is what you uh, expect. In this week's episode of the podcast, we speak with Tom Laffey, co-chair of the Network Equipment Working Group at Trusted Computing Group, about how that group is adapting its technology to secure new generations of connected Internet of Things systems. But first... On the heels of attacks on the Colonial Glass Pipeline and the meat processor JBS in recent weeks, the last week brought news of a ransomware attack on Kaseya, an IT management platform used primarily by managed service providers. The attack saw Kaseya's VSA software used to push out copies of the Revil ransomware to hundreds of downstream customers of managed service providers that used an on-premises version of Kaseya's VSA software. The incident raises yet more questions about the security of the software supply chain that companies across the economy rely on. In this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to dig deep into the Kaseya incident and try to answer some of the larger questions it raises about the security of critical technology platforms that are the scaffolding of modern enterprises. First up, we speak with Adam Myers, a senior vice president of intelligence at the firm CrowdStrike. Adam helps us dig into the specifics of the Kaseya hack and the group behind the Revil Ransomware, an advanced threat group that CrowdStrike has dubbed Pinchy Spider. Adam Myers, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. You've been a frequent guest. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, And if we're talking to CrowdStrike, the chances are (laughs) some dastardly thing has happened. Uh, And and we're looking to you to uh, help us all sort it out. And lo and behold, uh, come to I'm happy to talk proactive things, too. I know. I know. We talk about positive stuff. It's probably not totally accurate that we only have you on when the you-know-what is flying. But there there probably is a a correlation. Um, And in this case, it is another supply chain attack, this time on provider to managed service providers, IT management firm Kaseya. It's an Irish firm, but they have operations here in the United States as well and customers all over the world. Adam, just give us a rundown on on when this happened. No coincidence, it happened on the eve of uh, the July 4th holiday here in the U.S. and uh, the weekend everywhere else in the world. So uh, what did you guys see? You know, effectively, this uh, virtual systems administrator tool was used to distribute Revil, uh, which we associate, or R-Evil, which we associate with a group called Pinchy Spider, which you probably remember from just a few weeks ago with the uh, JBS meet incident. You know, in this case, they were, uh, it was, as you said, a supply chain attack. So they were actually able to cause the agent, the Kaseya agent, to deploy an encrypted file and then decrypt it, and then they used Windows Defender to load it uh, into memory through a DLL search order hijack. And that's how they were able to get our evil deployed. So the the victims here are, from what we can tell, a number of MSPs, managed service providers, who use Kaseya's uh, VSA software. The numbers range from 30 to maybe as high as 40. Um, but as you said, that they aren't. that's not... The, the buck doesn't stop with them or the, the, the attack doesn't stop with them. Their customers in turn are also uh, victims of this attack in many cases. Is that right? 
Right. So the, you know, um, the thing with the MSP is, is that because they're monitoring systems for others using the Kaseya platform that, you know, potentially expands the, the target scope uh, because of that. Now, Revol and this uh, Pinchy Spider group, this is a um, ransomware as a service operation. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So when we're talking about who is responsible for this, what can we really say with assurance as to, you know, whether this is, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the core group responsible for managing the software itself or, or just some customer of theirs who's renting it? Yeah, it's difficult to say. Um, you know, I, I think suffice to say they used our evil. So the platform is absolutely involved. Pinchy Spider had some involvement in, in that. As far as the, you know, did an affiliate do it uh, of the platform or was it a core user? We don't know. Um, you know, frankly, frequently the way that we'll kind of identify that is that we'll kind of follow the money and you'll see at some point that they pay their cut to the platform and they take their their cut of the ransom if it gets paid. And that's usually where we're able to definitively say if it was an affiliate or not. You mentioned um, just in your kind of summary of the attack that the attackers uh, leverage Windows Defender to actually help uh, install the ransomware. Talk about how that works exactly. Obviously, most people associate Windows Defender with uh, stopping malware, not helping to spread it. So how, how does that attack work? <laughs> yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a, I guess, a feature, if you will, in executables. So executables will load additional code that they may need to do different things. So for example, if, if your executable needs to talk to the internet, it might load an additional DLL, which enables it to communicate with the internet. Uh, the DLL being a dynamic link library, which is really just additional code that can be loaded when needed. And there's um, what's called search order hijacking, where the DLL could be in a very specific location, like Windows, System 32, for example. And the way that the executable looks for the DLL is that it first looks in the local directory before it starts to look in other directories. And so with search order hijacking, they take a legitimate version of Windows Defender um, and they actually load it. And when it loads, it automatically loads a DLL and it will first look in the local folder for that DLL. And that's how they kind of trick it into loading their DLL, which makes it look a little bit less suspicious to somebody that's monitoring the system. Um, and it kind of, you know, it, it takes advantage of, of some of the architecture of Windows. One of the things I noted just reading some of the accounts of, of how this all played out and what, one of the kind of concerns is that it seems pretty clear that um, the attackers um, were aware of, paid attention to some of uh, Kaseya's guidance to its customers, particularly around whitelisting um, of certain um, processes and files uh, and, um, you know, guidance they gave to modify, you know, endpoint um, detection uh, technology firewalls to obviously streamline Kaseya's, you know, IT management technology. And that those those rules in particular and that guidance in particular was leveraged by the attackers to help streamline getting the ransomware out. Um, is that something that organizations should be taking a hard look at? Um, what are our service providers asking us to do to kind of hobble our security technologies um, to make their lives easier? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's been happening for quite some time where, you know, there's things like whitelisting and, and, and things that make it such that the security tool runs better or network management tool or whatever it might be runs better. Uh, the problem is that the behavior that they're trying to whitelist that normally happens is also very similar to malicious behavior. So when you do that, you're, you're effectively lowering the shield. Yeah, and the, the presumption is always, well, you you can trust the the vendor, but of course, as we're seeing with both Solar Winds and now Kaseya, we we no longer can can assume that we can trust the vendor. Exactly, yeah. and so I mean, these and like we said after this the Solar Winds incident, threat actors saw that they they, they recognize the power of that type of attack. I think they understand how to to play it off and and to make it work. 
And here you have, you know, potentially an affiliate or, or not, you know, I guess we'll see. But you have what is not one of the more sophisticated groups conducting this operation, pulling off a supply chain attack. So I think you know, the, the once again, you know, I wouldn't say it's the first time, but once again, the writing is on the wall that you need to be cognizant of what software you're using in your enterprise, how you're using it, and looking to understand what that that software looks like in its normal operations. And it's, you know, worth noting, you know, we we had uh, quite a quite a few customers that were able to prevent this attack because they had their malware protection settings and Falcon set to the uh, proper, you know, kind of level of, of caution. And, and so we were able to um, prevent th this attack in, in many customers. You know, this is for companies this is really tricky because, of course, so so many are reliant not just on MSPs, but application providers of all shapes and sizes, you know, providing all kinds of services, uh, I, you know, IT consultants and contractors and so on. But um, if you step back from that, what what uh, can companies do to at least be sure if they can't plug all the holes that at least they can recover somewhat gracefully from these types of incidents? Well, I, you know, there's there's a couple of things that I've been telling people for a while now. The first thing is you, you need to have, you know, some investment in security. You need to take it seriously and you need to do kind of basic enterprise hygiene, patch management, uh, vulnerability assessment, knowing what software you have, where implementing things like the principle of least privilege network, you know, creating layers of defense, et cetera. Zero trust is one that, you know, in the last year or two, we've really been pushing and it's made a huge difference for organizations. The second thing beyond that is, you know, you need to be out hunting. You can't wait for the adversary to come to you. You can't wait to find out that your system was encrypted. You need to be out there actively pursuing these threats and trying to, you know, engage them as, as soon as you can. And that can be a challenge for some organizations. They might not have the budget. They might not have the manpower. But there's lots of managed security solutions out there that can help do managed threat hunting, which I strongly recommend because if you're waiting for it to come to you, you're 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 playing from a disadvantage at that point. And the th the third thing is you need to be using next gen AV. You can't be relying on signature based antivirus anymore. Um, you know things like this this example. Um, you know, signature-based AV really wouldn't have caught this. And so you need to have machine learning and, and artificial intelligence that you're employing to effectively stop these things sight unseen, having never encountered them before. And that's, that's what the power of machine learning is, is that it can classify something as malicious by behavior or by other art, artifacts that it can observe and really put a stop to this before it becomes a problem. The fourth thing, which I think gets back to your gets back to your question a little bit is, you know, you need to drill. You, you can't expect that, you know, you come in one day and everything's encrypted and you're like, oh, I'm just going to restore from backup because it's actually a lot harder to restore from backup than I think most people understand. So going through and doing tabletop exercises and practicing and running, all right, we came in and this happened. What do we do? Who do we call? Who's got point on different things? That really enables an organization to be successful and, and to, be, to, to be nimble. And the last thing, is you need to have intelligence. You need to understand who these threat actors are. And what I would you know, say is if you look at the adversary universe that we've published at uh, our website, we have a profile on Pinchy Spider and you can read all about it and, and see what we know about it. Because if you understand who these threat actors are, how they operate, you're in a better position to defend against it. Okay, final question. And I'm not sure what to make of this. There's been some um, indication that some of the reg keys and stuff uh, in in this attack had sort of political messages infused in them. There was a you know reg key that was Black Lives Matter and you know Trump forever and you know this kind of overt U.S. focused political content. So two questions: Is that type of shenanigans common? And should we make anything of this? What what's your read on that? You have to look at what happened after JBS and after Colonial, right? After JBS, the U.S. government, DOJ, said that they were going to treat these guys like terrorists, right? We, you know, and that, that has some connotations. And I think that Pinchy Spider reacted to that. They put out, they did an interview immediately after, and they said, if they're going to treat us like terrorists, then we're taking all the, you know, all, all the binders off. We're, we're going to let our, our affiliates just run wild and do whatever they want to do. And I, I think that, you know, for them, this is kind of now personal because they were being told they were going to be treated like terrorists. And so they're they're thinking that they're going to troll and, and, and kind of 
use this potentially, right? I mean, I've seen plenty of trolling and malware over the years, so I'm, I'm not surprised by that. If you were advising the government on how um, seriously to, to take that type of stuff um, in terms of their response, uh, what's your thoughts? I, I mean, I, I wouldn't take it too seriously. I think that they need to do something about it, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, regardless if, of what if they put something in the registry key, yeah. great, but, yeah. you know, let's, let's, you know, find out who these guys are and, and figure out what we need to do to stop them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's always great talking to you. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Have a good uh, holiday. Adam Myers is the Senior Vice President of Intelligence at the firm CrowdStrike. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This week's edition of the podcast is sponsored by the Trusted Computing Group. Months before the Revil ransomware gang sprung their trap on Kaseya's customers, a group of 40 or so Dutch security researchers working as volunteers were plumbing the security of the company's software and growing alarmed by what they found. Unfortunately, as we now know, they weren't alone, and evidence of who won the foot race between Kaseya and the Revil group to find and exploit those software holes is a matter of public record. In our second segment, we're speaking with one of the researchers who worked to discover those flaws and report them to Kaseya. Frank Briedrich is the CISO for Schuberg Phyllis and a manager at DIVD, the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, which discovered the flaw exploited by the Revil gang. In this conversation, Frank and I talk about DIVD and how the group came to be scrutinizing the Kaseya software. We also talk about what companies can do to secure their networks from software supply chain attacks like this one, and how a public health approach to cybersecurity is needed to address widespread flaws in core systems like IT management and data backup software. So, so I'm the head of the, the CSERT, the Computer Security Emergency uh, of Incident Response Team, and I'm the case lead for the Kaseya uh, case. So you published a blog post early on, basically indicated that you had been looking at that Kaseya platform and working with the company prior to the launch of that attack. What can you tell us just about the work that you were doing on the Kaseya platform and how your organization came to be looking at uh, the Kaseya software? The IVD is a, a volunteer organization with uh, ethical hackers that believe that vulnerabilities should be disclosed to those people that are in a position to, to act and do something about them. One of our researchers came across the uh, Kaseya software uh, during his job, and he started playing around with it in his, uh, in his free time. During that, that playing around, uh, he discovered vulnerabilities in the Kaseya product that we uh, diligently reported to Kaseya and have been working ever since we reported it with Kaseya to get those vulnerabilities resolved with the intent to uh, prevent like the attack that just happened. And if I'm right, Kaseya was not the only platform of this type that you were looking at, is that it was a, it was a larger audit, not just the Kaseya software? Yeah, recently we've noticed a trend where systems that are used to do system administration or are intended to keep your network uh, more secure or, or allow you to patch your network actually often contain vulnerabilities that have the opposite effect. They make your network less safe instead of, uh, of more safe. And these, these systems are, are and, and these vulnerability, types of vulnerabilities in these products are, are dangerous because these products either sit on the boundary between uh, the big bad outside world and 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 the internal. So they often sit either on the perimeter or there are things like backup software, which by definition often has high privileges on other systems uh, or, or things like Kaseya that, that can install software, uh, disable antivirus and, and, and do other stuff like that. So we noticed that these things often have these vulnerabilities, that they're, they're dangerous and we want to make a difference. So if you have to make a difference, you start with things that have a high impact instead of things that have a low impact. So we started to give these types of products more attention. 
and Kaseya fitted nicely in, 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 in that bracket of systems. And, and you, again, you guys are all kind of volunteers basically doing this on your own time and, and I'm guessing not for compensation. Uh, well, the compensation comes in the form of, uh, of appreciation and, and, and the warm, fuzzy feeling that accidents <laughs> didn't happen. So, um, so not stuff. for compensation, <laughs> not for monetary compensation. No, no, that's uh, a good it, answer. It, yes. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't feed my kids and it doesn't, uh, doesn't pay them. <laughs> right, right, right. That's uh, or I actually getting. I don't, or, or to put it more plainly, I don't get a dime. And at this moment in time, none of the volunteers get, get any, any monetary compensation for the work they do. And that's all 40, uh, 48 of them. Wow. We're all doing it for uh, from the deep belief that that the world and the internet should be a better place. So thank you for that volunteer work. If I'm sure I'm thank not the you. first person to thank you, but let me thank you for it. Still, I still get a warm and fuzzy feeling. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about the vulnerabilities in the Kaseya platform specifically, and also just kind of the timeline, like when these were discovered, when you reached out to the company and kind of where we are in the patching and disclosure process right now? Yeah, so so that's a question that at this moment in time is, is is a bit difficult for me to answer for a couple of reasons. We want to state that Kaseya has been working with us diligently. So they've responded really well to our to our report. They picked it up, they started working on it, and, and we've been in contact since. Unfortunately, I can't say they were on time with issuing a patch. It, it would be obvious to everybody that that's not the case. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? I mean, there's been speculation that the attack, initial attack vector was via SQL injection. Can you shed any light on that or kind of what the initial point of entry was for these? And also whether this is properly a supply chain attack along the lines of solar winds or just an attack on vulnerable application servers that had been deployed and, and not, you know, not a compromise of the software supplier themselves. So as far as, as we are aware, the, this is not the result of a, of a bad patch a compromised patch. Yeah. So this is not like like solar wind. This is a supply chain attack in the sense that SAFESA is often used by IT companies, managed service providers. Those are, are the primary customer group of Kaseya. And the ransomware isn't delivered to these managed service providers, but it's actually delivered to the customers of the managed service provider. So that's the supply chain aspect of, of mm -hmm. these, uh, this attack. So on the SQL injection as the initial attack vector, can you shed any light on what, um, to the best of your knowledge, uh, the, you know, provided the access that the Revel or Revel group uh, used uh, to- Yeah, this, at this moment in time, I can't disclose those details yet. And on the 20 CVE 2021, 30116, um, that has the, the only vulnerability used or are there others that have been used as well or in, in this uh, specific attack? Yeah, again, that's more information for Kaseya to disclose than, okay. than for us to disclose. And uh, but, yeah, but the type of attack is, this is not a single vulnerability attack. It doesn't take a single vulnerability to turn a system like Kaseya into to to weaponize it, if 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 I can use that term, uh, it takes more engineering uh, and and uh, one or more vulnerabilities to to turn a system like this into such a weaponize uh, yeah to weaponize it to deliver malware to such a large number of systems. And so presumably there are more vulnerabilities that will have CVEs attached to them that will be disclosed in the future. I'll leave that conclusion to you, Paul. Okay. But th these would be, when you're talking about vulnerabilities, you're talking specifically about Kaseya's code and not say uh, a third party component or an open source library or something that isn't specific to Kaseya. Yeah, that would again be disclosing too much. <laughs> okay. Um, so you mentioned that, um, or you you wrote in your blog that again, this was part of a larger um, project of looking at platforms that are um, kind of part of the uh, scaffolding or infrastructure of many modern companies. And you mentioned so, you yeah. know some of the you, common you call them IT for IT. IT for IT. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. If you were to talk, um, so. 
for for the purposes of our listeners, uh, what other categories of kind of IT for IT are there out there and that companies maybe should be paying special attention to, um, you know, in light of this attack? Yeah, so so currently it's 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 what we're looking at is is backup software, system administration software, uh, administrative portals in general, and uh, network security equipment, in, including VPN appliances. And a lot of times, the these these types of systems have a vulnerability. That vulnerability is is not as such in the user interface. So so the way normal users interact with the system, but it's in the administrative interface. So as a, as a general advice, we would really like everybody to, to pay attention to those administrative uh, interfaces. Uh, in my, my, my day job, my paying job, um, I'm, I'm a security guy for an MSP. And, and my directive to, every, to everybody in our company is don't put administrative interfaces, as online, interfaces online. Put them in a separate network that only you can reach put them behind a VPN or put at least a whitelist on it for only those systems that need to reach that administrative interface. And if you do that, you might still have the vulnerability, but your attack surface has instantly become a lot smaller. And it could be the difference between spending 4th of July behind the barbecue uh, or, uh, or at the office. If you were to characterize the types of problems you're finding in these platforms, and we mentioned SQL injection as being one, so injection flaws we know from OWASP, really common. Um, what, are, what are some of the other problems? Is it basically just the OWASP top 10 and that's what you're finding? Or are there other you know, problems that, are, that are maybe people aren't as aware of? Unfortunately, it's 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 everything in the cat or the dog. All everything that's wrong with normal web applications you can find in these administrative interfaces as well. And because they're 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 only used by a small group of people, they are poorly researched. I mean, a vulnerability in WordPress gets spotted sooner than than a vulnerability in yeah. the in, in 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 the admin interface of of a VPN appliance or. But it's it's really everything. Um, if I think back to to Citrix, which was uh, the last big thing before before Corona took over uh, all the media attention, uh, mm. it was big on our side of the pond. That was a directory traversal error, uh, which have been in, and I, I think that's one of the first classes of errors that 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 you learn about when 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 you learn about penetration testing and vulnerabilities and and it's really that kind of uh it, it, it really is that level in a lot of people associate the term oday with something that must be complex advanced um and and it might be complex and advanced for certain types of of, of things like your iphone or android where people are willing to pay pay a lot of money but that's not yeah. because the hacks are advanced. It's because O-Day means there is no patch available for this vulnerability yet, and therefore it's it's guaranteed to to work. Whereas if you've got a vulnerability that has be, has already has a patch to it, um, yeah, the chances of that vulnerability working are, is a lot lower. And you said you work at an MSP kind of in your day job. I mean, one of the issues that came up, as you mentioned, is, you know, these applications like VSA or a backup application are highly privileged within the environments that they manage for, for obvious reasons. And we know from the, from the Kaseya um, incident as well, or at least what's been written about it, that there were also, you know, instructions for Kaseya customers to, you know, whitelist um, uh, or create firewall exceptions for certain, you know, applications, files, and so on. And then, you know, the ransomware actors took advantage of those as they as they went to, you know, um, gain control of the environment. So, given that these are, you know, uh, tools that are used and highly privileged within your environment but also that the providers themselves are now being targeted <laughs> and attacked. 
Um, what are the what should customers be doing around you know to try and balance? Okay, well we want this MSP to actually do stuff for us, but we don't want to like throw the doors open in the event that they actually get have their software compromised or they get compromised themselves, and 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 we we feel the pain from that. Yeah, I think it it starts with a conversation. Um, but right now is a good time to have a conversation with your your MSP. Uh, asking them how do you prevent uh, that I become a victim if if there is a vulnerability in the tools that you use. If anything, this attack has proven that that's not a hypothetical, but 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 a very real risk. Unfortunately, um, security at some point anchors in trust. Um, if you can't trust your own system administrator, then it's not your system. It's 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 somebody else's system. But, but one of the questions I would ask is, uh, do you have any administrative interfaces that are reachable from the internet? From in, in the network that you're using to manage my estate, is there any administrative ac- an interface that people have access to that, that anybody on the internet has access to? Even if it's username, if, if the next thing is, yes, it's username and password and dual, dual factor authentication, understand how much they're exposing on the internet. Right. What should we infer from the fact that there were vulnerabilities in the Kaseya platform or, you know, looking back to SolarWinds, that these application vendors didn't catch these uh, in production code? Um, what should we, can we infer anything from that? And I guess what, um, what should they be doing to catch these before they get out the door and into customer environments? I think the, the main conclusion you can draw from this is just because you're you're in security, you're not automatically writing secure code. You're you're just as bad as anybody else out there. It's just as impossible to write perfectly secure code of of, of a reasonable size than it is to build a skyscraper and not make any mistakes. Obviously, it's critical not to make any mistakes that make the skyscraper fall down. Uh, but there, yeah, you have to defend their paradox. It's um, as 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 a software vendor, you have to do everything right. As a as a CISO of a company or a security officer of a company, you have to make sure every every hole, every vulnerability in your organization is is patched. And as an attacker, you only need a single hole you can worm yourself through. So so. Yeah, the energy that you need to spend defending is much higher than the energy you need to spend attacking. Economies of, of countries are huge, but of course, the number of platforms that actually are used is fairly small, relatively, right? Um, is, is that a you know sort of taking a public health approach to this as opposed to just a, an industry-based approach? Um, what are your thoughts on that? And and is there is there any evidence that that's happening? I, I, I like the way you framed it: a public internet health. Uh, or public cyber health approach. We're, we're doing this because nobody else is. And, and there's, there's multiple reasons for it. Some are, are legal, some have to do with, with privacy regulations, some have to do with computer criminality laws, because looking at somebody's system remotely without permission might be interpreted mm-hmm. as, as hacking. Obviously more work like ours is needed. Um, that's that's for sure. There's a, there's there's more out there uh, that we haven't looked at than there is stuff that we looked at. The stuff that we previously looked at is is under constant development and constantly changing. So so right now we're still picking up the pieces and, and cleaning up the mess. Doesn't matter that much yet how we got here, but obviously we need to do a very good evaluation later on. Frank Bridgik is a founder and manager at DIVD, the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure. And finally, the Internet of Things is growing by leaps and bounds, and so is the cyber risk that goes along with Internet-connected devices. It's been years since the Mirai botnet burst onto the scenes and put IoT security on the map, but, the, but insecurity is still a major problem. What's to be done about this? In our final installment, we're joined by Tom Laffey. 
He's a product security strategist at Aruba, a Hewlett-Packard enterprise firm, and the co-chair of the Network Equipment Working Group at the Trusted Computing Group. Tom's going to talk to us about how TCG is adapting its technology to make it easier for new generations of connected devices to attest to their integrity. Top on Trusted Computing Group's list, a strong immutable device identity that can be assigned to new devices during the manufacturing process and live with them for their useful life, providing a root of trust for a wide range of critical functions like secure boot and configuration. In this conversation, Tom and I talk about the work that he and TCG are doing to to create and promote secure device identities for the Internet of Things. I'm Laffey. I work at the uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise Aruba Networks business unit. I'm in the CTO office there, and uh, I work primarily with the product generation side of business on uh, product security, kind of across all the personal product lines. That brings me into things like uh, the TPM, which we're going to talk about today, certificates and PKI, anti-malware efforts, and that sort of thing. And Tom, we're talking to you because you also do a lot of work with the Trusted Computing Group. So talk about uh, what you do with TCG. In the Trusted Computing Group, I'm a co-chair of two different working groups. Uh, The one that we're talking here today, I think primarily about, would be the Networking Equipment Workgroup. I also co-chair the Infrastructure Workgroup. And I'll just briefly talk about infrastructure because it's kind of related to these other things as well. The Infrastructure Workgroup uh, is really focusing on adopt you know, the, the technologies or the information specifications that are required to adopt TCG technologies. So I'm working there on things like certificates and device identity, for example. The networking equipment group, work group is a is a kind of a platform work group, and we focus there on uh, obviously networking equipment, but how to use um, the TCG technologies in networking specifically. And there are some differences because, you know, much like a server, but unlike a PC, networking equipment is on all the time, but it's also got lots of networking ports and, and so on. So we, we think that there are some special cases there that we want to, to focus on and to cover and to describe directly to the rest of Trusted Computing Group if those questions arise. We were talking before, I mean, just kind of talking over some of these some of these topics and issues but i mean you said kind of one of the common ideas that ties together the work you do at trusted computing is this notion of device identity and i think our listeners probably have a pretty clear idea of kind of the original notion of device identity as it was set up to address desktops laptop servers you know traditional enterprise environment but these days what when we're talking about device identity in 2021 what are we talking about and what are the different forms that it, it might take i suppose that people other people have a idea of what form it takes but i have a very specific notion of that and and that is that i i want to be able to use that uh, identity in a authentication process whether that's tls or or um, something similar i uh, this new specification that we have right now in public review is for TPM2, and it's a, an X509 uh, certificate. So it's coupling a TPM-backed key and a uh, and an identity of a product or a, a device. And, and what we want to have there is something that's a very strong way to identify that endpoint to a relying party. Now, that relying party could be anything, but uh, it commonly arises that it's one of two things. It's either some peer. So if you're having maybe an IPsec connection or something like that, that you want to authenticate peer-to-peer, probably more likely you're authenticating to something maybe over the web. And uh, you know that, that uh, endpoint service needs to know what device is is uh, kind of ringing the doorbell. And and that really uh, matters when we have things today, especially in the uh, you know Internet of Things. It really matters uh, if you have a, uh, say, a cloud management service, you know, that's, that's managing perhaps millions of devices, that you need to know exactly which device it is with some high degree of certainty because it belongs to, you know, some customer, some subscriber, and not some other, not some other customer or subscriber. So uh, the, the, um, the management service needs to know exactly uh, what device that is. And so, so the, the uh, device identity uh, specification 
that that's that I was working on is is focused on using a TPM and and in the factory putting in a device identity what we call an initial device identity or IDEV ID uh, certificate on the product so that it can identify itself kind of from then on as as it as what it was born to be in the factory so there are other systems that could be using that to install other certificates or or whatever but that thing would always be there for the life of the product at least that's the intention and um, and that way that whatever service it's connecting to uh, knows what it is. And that's really useful. That's really useful for things like zero-touch provisioning. So if you have a you know an IoT-like device, uh, it could be a kind of a high-end IoT device that's got a TPM in it, but maybe not so high-end. That thing can use the internet to connect to a management service or a support service or whatever whatever that might be, and um, have a good reliable authentication. And because it's a TPM, you can do more with it. But, you know, that's the starting point with the device identity. One of the big topics right now is, of course, supply chain, software supply chain security. And there have been a bunch of incidents that have brought that to the forefront, chief among them, the, the solar winds hack, which saw a compromise of the build process for the solar winds Orion product that that ended up putting a backdoor into a lot of their customers' uh, environments. But there have been others as well. I mean, there, there have certainly been many stories about um, compromised or uh, trojaned you know, uh, mobile phone applications and, and so on. I mean, this is a, just a common theme these days. Is there, a, um, is there a, a fix for those supply chain security issues you know, by way of the trusted computing group technology, TPM, DICE, um, you know, better attestation, better or more comprehensive use of, you know, encryption and signing. Uh, can we can we make this problem go away or at least make it a lot less common? I think we have some help there. SolarWind got a lot of attention because it it really circumvented the basics, but we can't get away from the basics, which is that you know things like firmware updates and software updates need to be signed and and, and integrity protected. So uh, you always want to make sure that nothing the actual delivered image hasn't been tampered with since it was created. Now, SolarWinds has really got the attention it did because somebody got in ahead of that process. They got into the development process and the, and so on. So that brings in, you know, companies have to be pretty well aware of how does code get in, checked into their code base and how does it uh, get reviewed? And that would include something like uh, maybe they're using open source and, you know, who's who's uh, checking that, you know, who's monitoring that. So you can't, I guess you can't assume anymore that everything's safe, right? We're, we're kind of moving to the point where, uh, you know, zero trust really is extending into the is extending into everything. But on the TCG front, you know, something like a TPM and and actually other technologies as well. But I'll talk about TPM because I'm most familiar with it. We can use that and things like measured boot and um, attestation. You know, there's a there's a technology in Linux called IMA or Integrity Measured Measurement Architecture, and so. These are uh, allow a remote verification process. So things like uh, the, the firmware load, the software load, configuration, pretty much whatever you can, whatever you can create a hash or digest of, you can uh, verify is is what you uh, expect. This is a complicated system. It works best when you have a, a, a large install base. You have a lot of different things, but that's actually where you need it the most as well. So uh, it, it's a good fit when when you have these things. You can you can do a remote attestation and you can verify that the system is in the expected state. It doesn't impose a policy. It's just a it's a way of pairing what you tell me now versus what I'm expecting to hear. And if they match, then then it, you know you've got a a match. It's what I expect. But if it's if it's not not uh, a match, then policy is is variable. It could be anything of uh, you know I'm going to take you off the network. Uh, could be I'm going to I'm going to remotely restart you. Maybe a data center would just uh, redeploy the containers or whatever that are running on that. So there's a there's a range of operations. That the attestation process only tells you that if things are as expected or they're not, and from then you have to decide what to do about it. But I think that's very helpful for a lot of these very large um, numbers of things, and it can be very simple if it's just a, a video camera. You know, have it could have a very simple attestation of you know uh, just a symbol a, a you know what's the firmware you know running right now? Again, again, it's all cryptographically done, so it's not just a matter of reporting. It's it's a there's a root of trust that is um, uh, kind of independently responding. You can't uh, you can't fake the answers um, and that sort of thing. I know Trusted Computing Group is is doing work on its own to make the 
make the technology adaptable to different use cases. Um, not again, not just the, the traditional laptop desktop server. Dice is part of that. And now I guess this new Mars effort is part of that. Just talk about kind of how TCG has kind of abstracted, I guess, the core TPM functions to be able to be, as you said, implemented in firmware um, and or even kind of cobbled together in some cases um, on, you know, devices that just don't just don't need to run a full TPM. TCG has always allowed a, a TPM to be what they call profiled or scaled down, right? So that we have the the common TPM, what people know of as the TPM, is is the the profile for a, a PC or a server. But uh, there's a there's a profile of TPM for uh, an automotive product, for example. So there are TCG specifications for. Um, the TPMs that are, you know, related to your engine control unit and so forth. So they can authenticate the different things around the car. So that it, it exists in that direction. That's kind of a, a unique case. Um, but beyond TPMs, we have DICE, we have MARS. DICE was uh, an effort to uh, kind of standardize some uh, identity and authentication capability that's using you know, the kinds of crypto that are commonly into small microcontrollers so that they can be included in IoT kinds of devices. And I think Mars is is doing some of the same thing, but it's kind of more of a framework. They're extending it further, kind of breaking things down into how do you compose something useful out of different kinds of crypto. I think the, the initial effort on Mars was to use uh, symmetric crypto to do uh, kinds of uh, authentication. Now that you have to when you do that, you have to have kind of a shared secret. And so it wasn't an answer for everybody, but it, it did work for, I guess, whatever they were targeting it at. But now they're introducing asymmetric crypto there. And, and I think in the end, what we'll see out of Mars is a very um, flexible set of technologies that you could put things together to do TPM-like things, but in a very small fashion that'll fit. You know, you can be adapted depending on what crypto is available in that product. It doesn't require necessarily a certain algorithm. You can, you know, you use this... I need a I need a symmetric algorithm. Pick one. I need an asymmetric algorithm. Pick one. I need a hash algorithm. Pick one. Uh, and, and you can you can build something out of that. So I I think of uh, Mars as the kind of most generalized. Dice is, uh, um, it has some other characteristics like uh, implicit attestation. So that basically you, the thing can't even talk to you if it's if it's been compromised. So that's a, a plus in some ways depending on the market. So there's a there. We're definitely working on the spectrum of adapting TPM directly. It's a bit into cars, it's into mobiles, mobile phones. And then uh, these other technologies, so DICE and Mars, to kind of break that apart into um, like a toolkit of things that could be applied to other classes of devices. I think in the, the IoT world, and as I mentioned earlier on the um, you know remotely managed things, as these things scale up, you need more automation to handle scale I mean, you can't have people doing all these things it's it's a it's a foregone conclusion that you can't scale the people as fast as you can scale all these devices so authentication needs the zero trust is is essential to doing the automation which makes it zero touch uh, so you don't have to have a person um, maybe it's the maybe it's the end user configuring their own thing but it connects to some network in a very zero touch way so anyway I'm saying that the authentication, strong authentication, and the technologies required attestation, integrity protections, and so forth are really essential to scaling these things in a secure manner. So I think uh, to enable scaling, and that helps keep the cost down of, of uh, a product, these, these security features or characteristics have a kind of a business benefit aside from just the raw security value, I guess I would call it. If that, does that make sense? <laughs> And obviously, the million-dollar question is: How do we drive adoption of TPM technologies and this, you know, um, security paradigm, this security framework, uh, down uh, both, you know, to the to the um, to the individual, you know, house and to the individual user and device? It seems like you know, security-focused companies um, and industries are already aware of it, use it, but many do not, including many device makers and, and even maybe some, some uh, larger infrastructure providers or, or haven't thought about it yet. So how do we, uh, how do we increase adoption so that we know that when the, when the infrastructure gets built that, we, that we're not having to retrofit security onto it? 
Well, I hate to use the regulation word, but there is an aspect of that. And I don't mean necessarily government regulation. Uh, there, there could be, uh, you know, Verizon has controls, for example, on what they allow on their network. And I would expect that sort of thing to evolve over time. I'm using them as an example. I don't really have any specific knowledge of what they do. But the the, the idea is that, um, you know, and, and then there's another actual res- regulation point and has to do with like cyber insurance. So, um, you know, you, you see uh, insurance companies uh, have a have a big uh, influence on uh, building codes and so forth. So we could over time see that um, these other third parties come in to say, well, if you want to do this, it's fine. But if you want us to insure it, uh, you'll have to do it this way. And so, or, or use this technology or something like it. I think we're at a point now where it's still a bit of a wild west, but over time, there will be some dependencies that show up and that will guide um, some of these decisions, I think. I mean, if listeners want to learn more about, you know, implementing this technology in their own product um, or they're within their own organization, where, where should they go, Tom? Well, of course, you can always go to TCG, the trustedcomputinggroup.org, and we have public web pages, website information there. If you're a business or want to work uh, as part of TCG, always welcome to uh, to join us. If if uh, if there's a particular area that uh, you can uh, add some value, that would be wonderful. But aside from that, there are things that you can find out on the web on zero-touch provisioning. There's some ITF standards on that. There's um, there's quite a lot out there. You do have to look around, but uh, you can see that there are other people around the you know the the uh, community uh, that are working on these uh, things, uh, each w- with their own perspective and um, so forth. So uh, I, I would encourage people to, to continue to explore these things because I, I really think they're going to be, while they're pretty prevalent now in some classes of products, I think they're going to be much more so in the future and, and learning how to use them and, and what they can and can't provide, but mostly how to use them, I think is a really key thing. Tom Laffey of Aruba and Trusted Computing Group, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Great. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. Tom Laffey is a product security strategist at Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise firm. He's also co-chair of the Network Equipment Working Group at the Trusted Computing Group. You've been listening to the Security Ledger Podcast sponsored by the Trusted Computing Group. Through open standards and specifications, Trusted Computing Group enables secure computing. Through its member-driven network groups, Trusted Computing Group enables the benefits of trust and computing devices from mobile to embedded systems, as well as network, storage, infrastructure, and cloud security. More than a billion devices include TCG technologies. Check them out at trustedcomputinggroup.org.